There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time, and the intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is sexual offending and personality disorders. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of hosting Professor Sean Kaliski. Sean is a forensic psychiatrist and recently retired as head of the Forensic Mental Health Service in the Western Cape. He was also affiliated with the Department of Psychiatry and Mental Health at the University of Cape Town. And Sean has also edited and contributed to what I think was and remains a critical book for all forensic psychiatrists and forensic psychologists entitled Psycholegal Assessment in South Africa. Sean, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me in conversation. Thank you, Chris. The first question I have is a very basic question, but I think we all just need to get our terms of reference clear. What is a forensic psychiatrist? And I know this may sound quite trite to you as a forensic psychiatrist, but I think it's important for folk to understand what is a forensic psychiatrist. No, I think that's quite an opposite question, really, because I know when I used to give radio interviews, I used to be referred yes. to as a criminal psychologist. So I'm not a criminal, I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> Right. But what it really means is that someone who has studied psychiatry and specialized then yes. super specializes in the elements of the law that pertain to psychiatric practice. Right. And usually in our context here, it has to do with criminal law, but it has a lot of applications in civil litigation as well. Okay, so I suppose more for the purposes of today's conversation, we're going to be looking at the criminal side of things, although it's not to say that issues of personality, and I think you've um, written about that quite recently in South African psychiatry, they may also impact on civil litigation as well, for example, within the context of divorce. But I think that for today's purposes, predominantly, we're going to be looking at the um, at the criminal side of things. And I mean, the, the, the obvious question for me, because I think audience need to understand, the article that you wrote um, recently in South African psychiatry was entitled The Psychiatrist's Dilemma sexual offending and personality disorders. And, and, and that article was, in fact, based on a, on a lecture that you gave. And I was kind of curious, what was your motivation for, for giving that lecture on this specific topic? Actually, I was asked to give the lecture. Um, right. There's an organization called Sasha, which has right. to do with sexual health. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so there's this borderline between what one regards as illicit sex and illegal sex or behavior, I was asked to sort of comment on it in a debate. Right. So I, I did that. But it's, a, it's an area which has uh, fascinated and worried me for more than 30 years. Right. You know, what do you make of sexual offenders? Who are they? Et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that, that's basically what motivated me. So, I mean, obviously, if it's, if it's, if it's an issue that's worried you for, for decades, what are the specific aspects of the issue that have been, you know, concerning to you? Everybody's brought up mm -hmm. and taught what is appropriate sexual behavior. Why is it that some people flout that rule? 
what, what, what is going on there? Yes. And the question isn't as simple as it sounds, because historically, sexual offending actually was part of the norm. And even yes. nowadays, it's the norm in some places. For example, in the article I wrote, I introduced a beautiful painting by Poussin called The Rape of the Sabines. The, the myth goes in ancient Rome, they had very few women to start their civilization. So they went to the nearby Sabines and abducted and raped the women. Right. And the Romans were proud of this. They were proud of that. Now, we think we've come a long way since then, but this whole idea of abducting a woman in order to have her is still going on in some parts of the world, particularly Correct. in the Caucasus. Yes. Um, they will abduct a woman, they will rape her, and then she's theirs. Right. And what I also noted... And it's always worried me, how come rape is not one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not rape. And it's because my understanding in the Old Testament is that rape was seen as a property crime. Right. Not a crime against the person. Because the owner of that woman, namely her father, uh, would have to bear the sort of devaluation of her because she's been raped. Right. And um, it, it's just astonishing when you think about historically. Right. So the real issue in the modern life is... Why do people not follow what is regarded as legal or moral behavior? Why, why do they break those rules? And that, that's basically what, what worries me. Sean, I was looking at the number of sexual offenses that occur in this country in a given year. And for the reporting year of 2019-2020, there were just under 53,500 such offenses, which when I calculated it, I mean, that's, that's like one offense every 12 minutes. And so I think that, you know, this issue of sexual offending is a, is a significant issue in our society and places a, a huge burden upon the female population. I mean, what would your thoughts be on that? Look, South Africa is not the only country that has such a, an epidemic. Even the UK does. And the bottom line is this. Yes. That a large majority of women are not safe in their own homes. Right. And they're not safe even when they're walking around in, in the community. Um, and the, the astonishing and outrageous side of it is how many people blame the woman. Right. Um, because she dresses provocatively or she walks sort of unaccompanied in a dangerous area. What was she doing there? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so yes, it, it, it's a terrible, terrible epidemic. So as a forensic psychiatrist, I mean, obviously we're talking about sexual offending and we're talking about personality. And yeah. what I find interesting if I look at the psychiatric classification system, and here specifically I'm talking yeah. about the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth version, American Psychiatric Association product, they list eight what are called paraphilic disorders. And when I look at them, I actually see that at least four of them, if not potentially five, actually constitute offenses against the law. I mean, I'm talking about exhibitionism, where you expose yourself, sexual gratification, voyeurism, where you're watching people change or undress without them being aware of it for your own sexual gratification, um, frotterism, where you're rubbing your genitalia against someone uninvited uh, for your sexual gratification, and uh, pedophilia, which I think everybody would understand is sexual relations with, with, with minors, and even sexual sadism, um, which might involve coercion. So, I mean, there are three others, sexual masochism, uh, fetishism, and, and transvestism. But the first five that I've mentioned all constitute 
actual offenses. So how do we kind of marry that with the fact that these are classified as disorders? Have you committed an offense or are you simply somebody who has a condition that needs to be treated? I think that for me is also one of the tricky issues that we find ourselves in. How would you respond to that? Well, a couple of years ago, I was involved in a, um, a group that was asked by the WHO to look at the idea as to whether in the latest edition of the ICD, right. which I think would be ICD-11, yeah. um, whether sexual um, deviations or paraphilia should actually be included as disorders. Right. And there was a very, very convincing lobby that said, not at all. Why should they be regarded as disorders? They are orientations. This is what people like to do. Right. And, of course, the major precedent is homosexuality, right. which even in DSM-3 was a disorder. Right. And what is astonishing is that it wasn't removed from the DSM in subsequent editions because suddenly science realized it wasn't a disorder. It was because there was very good lobbying right. by people who said, this is outrageous. How can you call homosexuality and orientation a disorder? Right. And this is where we stand still with all of these um um, so-called paraphilias. To take, para take even pedophilia. Yes. For people who are attracted to children, right? That's their orientation. Why on earth are we pathologizing it? Right. And the 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 consequence of pathologizing what are really crimes is that somebody who commits a crime could immediately claim to be ill, mm -hmm. and they can then claim or demand treatment. And this is what's happening very, very much in Northern America, where rapists and pedophilia offenders, etc., all clamor to be treated. And part of their sentence is to go into some sort of treatment plan. Right. And what I think is really interesting is that these treatment plans don't really work. Okay. And why don't they work? Because it's their orientation. So if someone came up to me and said, oh, we think being heterosexual is a really bad thing. We're going to convert you to homosexual. There'd be absolutely no ways that that could be done. Right. And that is what they're doing with pedophilia and all these other so-called paraphilias. So I, I just wanted to clarify, when we speak about WHO, we're speaking about the World Health Organization. When we're speaking about ICD, we're speaking about the International Classification of Diseases, which covers all medical conditions. So it's not psychiatric specific, although there is a, a book That's that correct, deals yeah. with mental disorders. Yeah. So it, it sounds to me that the ICD versus the DSM could be taking a slightly different path in that they are thinking about removing certain conditions such as exhibitionism, voyeurism, fraterism, pedophilia, maybe even sexual sadism, yeah. removing those yeah. from the nomenclature, yeah. which would then take it out of psychiatry's hands and put it where it potentially rightfully belongs, which is in the law. Except I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. I think there's going to be such a backlash and there is so much investment. You know, many people, psychiatrists, our colleagues, have built enormously impressive um, careers yes. out of research and treatment of sexual offenders. Right. And um, they would be completely outraged that suddenly we want to convert these from being um, disorders to just being illegal or unsavory practices. I'm just curious, though, because, I mean, if, if this were put – I'm not saying it will be put to the general public. 
I think that might be seen as outrageous. Um, or am I putting it too strongly? Um, <clears throat> I don't know what the general public would feel. I mean, there are, there are lots of people who think that uh, medicalizing illegal activity or just awful activity is distasteful. And they're very much against it. And I think that's partly why psychiatry, particularly forensics, is such a bad name, because they see us as making excuses for inherently bad people. So I think and that, sometimes we are. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Sean, you were saying, so I, I spoke over no, you. Karen, Karen, yeah. I think that is a concern. I think as a psychiatrist, you know, looking at one's own discipline, and looking, obviously, to act always in the best interests of, of, of patient care, you find yourself potentially with a set of diagnoses, which one is obliged to make on the basis of the classification systems. But you then find yourself in a situation where you may be arguing uh, against any uh, legal action as a consequence of the person actually suffering from a psychiatric condition. Would yeah. you say that's... But it can get very complicated. Yes, you're right. But this could get very complicated. So in the forensic arena, um, being declared mentally ill does not mean having a psychiatric disorder only. So there are a lot of psychiatric disorders that don't breach the threshold for mental illness as the law foresees mental illness. Okay. But it's usually a matter of degree. How much, how much can the person control himself? And if they can't control themselves... Is it, is, it a, is it due to some sort of psychiatric disorder? And this is where personality comes in. Right. Because unsavory sexual behavior is very frequently a criterion used to diagnose someone with a personality disorder. They have this pattern of unsavory behavior, and they have a, that, that's the reason to treat them. And many of these people will go to court and say, look, um, I have this personality disorder with sexual urges, and in fact, there's even a a movement nowadays to talk about sex addiction. So not only do you have a personal right. dis personality disorder, but you have an addiction. Right. And these two sort of dovetail very nicely. And therefore, they try and convince the courts that this person needs to be treated rather than punished, um, which I think is very questionable because on both counts, uh, outcomes are very poor. So people who have a personality disorder don't really respond that much to, to treatment. And people who have who are sexual offenders also don't respond very well to treatment. I mean, if we're talking about personality, I, I know that in your book there's a there's a chapter which you which you wrote which actually deals with the issue of of, of personality and and the difference between you know normal personality and, and and personality disorders. Do you do you want to comment briefly on on that? I know it's quite a technical issue, but I think it's important to distinguish between what is normal. And what is disorder, which can be used potentially, not that it is necessarily in, in, in mitigation of, of, of a sexual offense. So if the person's personality actually makes that person more dangerous, then they can refer the person for an assessment under what's called Section 26A to see if this person is a, a dangerous offender. And right. in that case sort of in principle, because the person has a personality disorder, in actual fact, he may end up going to jail a lot longer. But there have been attempts to use personality as a mitigating factor, that this poor person has a personality that's predisposed to 
inappropriate sexual behavior. Take, for example, borderline personality. Right. In my view, that hasn't really worked. But where the offense is, isn't particularly horrendous, in other words, no serious violence was involved, the courts may take it into mitigation and they may, as part of the sentence, direct that person to go and be treated. And there are various people, particularly in private, in other words, therapists, who will undertake those treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the follow-up is very poor. And um, I was watching a, a very interesting lecture by one of the foremost um, researchers in sexual offending, John Bradford in Canada. And he and a colleague down in, in Texas who treats sexual offenders had to admit that one doesn't even know whether treatment helps sexual offenders. You can put them in for 12 weeks, and you don't know how they are five years, 10 years later. You have absolutely no idea whether they re-offend. Do they tend to drop out of treatment? Um, No, not necessarily, because um, a lot of those um, programs, for example, in Canada and the United States, they are subject to strict supervision. Right. And their every movement is followed. And what they do in some of these programs in the United States is with the person's, in other words, the offender's consent, they instruct people who know the offender, who will work with the offender to look for signs and to report if they think this offender is going off the rails and um, behaving inappropriately. But the real problem is that sometimes um, treatment, when it's done in in particular as a group, um, offenders actually learn how to get away with their sexual offending better by participating in groups. Right. Um, and that that is a huge problem. How do you know that someone who's been through some sort of treatment program is, is cured? You don't. And they probably aren't because sexual offenders are one of the highest recidivists in the criminal justice system. Well, I think that's very important. And the question I would have is to what extent that is linked to the condition being so hardwired, or what is the link between that and personality? And specifically, yeah. I want to touch on antisocial personality. What would you What would you say to that? Yeah, I think it's a problem because the inappropriate sexual behavior is used as part of the diagnosis right. of a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So you could say someone who has raped 10 women, he must have a personality disorder. He must have because someone who, who persistently offends, particularly in a sexual arena, right. either is unable completely to control himself or he simply doesn't care. He doesn't care about the consequences. Right. And particularly in this latter scenario, that puts that person firmly into the, the, the sort of area of a personality disorder. Question is, if you treat that person, what do you, what do you see as the primary problem? The fact that they have a disordered personality mm-hmm. or they have this strange sexual problem. Um, mm. I, and, and just to just elucidate even further, the yeah. whole idea of what is a personality disorder is very, very contentious. Right. Very contentious. Yes, it is, because it kind of shades beyond the, the normal um, in an extreme way and in a very kind of selective, focused way, depending on the nature of the personality disorder. I suppose a balanced person has a touch of everything at the end of the day, but is able to call upon different aspects of one's personality as required by a given situation. The one thing that, that, that I wanted to ask, you know, individuals with, with, with sexual disorders, to what extent 
and this may be slightly outside of your scope, but to what extent do you think they, they self-identify and present for care in advance of committing an offence? No, I've never come across that. They only, they only arrive for treatment once they've committed the offence. Okay. Um, I've only had one, I've only had one case of a guy who presented telling me he had very worrying fantasies about abducting and raping women. And he, he admired Jeffrey Dahmer. He bought memorabilia that belonged to Jeffrey Dahmer. Wow. And he was very worried that he was going to commit an offense. And that's okay. why he came for treatment. So this is he part of, was very rare. Okay. So yeah. this is part of the problem really is that the presentation is usually within the context of having already committed a crime. And that's where the diagnosis gets made. And that's where the underlying personality is kind of potentially linked with the sexual offense that, that takes place. So it's kind of after the fact. Yes. And just bear this in mind yes. that most sexual offenders are versatile criminals. Okay. So the sexual offense is not usually the only thing they, only bad thing they do. Okay. They are often, often steal, they um, defraud people, um, they smoke substances, they do a whole lot of stuff which is very much part of the psychopathic kind of psychopathic lifestyle. So, so very frequently the sexual offending is just one component. Okay. So I think that's very important actually because one is seeing that then the sexual offending is embedded within a potential range of other offending that takes place. Yes. Okay, yes. so one has to kind of elucidate that because then that gives you a more comprehensive view of the of the underlying personality structure potentially. Yeah. In terms of yeah, but you also remember that there are so many other factors that, that sort of come into play. Okay. And it's not just personality, okay. it's about opportunity, right. it's about all sorts of things, substance abuse, there's all sorts of things that kind of come together at a particular time. And that results in a, an offense. In an act. Tell me something. Um, yep. In terms of individuals who are brought for assessment to a forensic yeah. psychiatrist, how many uh, yeah. might suffer from, let's for, use a, a, a condition that is, is, is probably widely understood, bipolar disorder, who may, within the context of yeah. a manic episode, have committed a sexual offense in terms of inappropriately touching someone or even forcing them upon forcing themselves upon someone. How, how often does that happen? Actually not that as often, not as often as you might think. It's actually quite rare. Okay. Uh, okay. uh yeah, it's something. It's, yeah. I, I haven't seen that many cases of people who are manic who are then arrested for, because a sexual offense. I mean, yes. In the old days, you used to get a lot who would, in a manic state, the guy would go into a shop and he'd fondle a woman. Right. Um, in front of everybody. And so hypersexuality is often charged. Hypersexuality is often associated with, uh, with mania. So I was just kind of curious as yes. to how frequently that might be seen within the forensic context, but you're saying actually not that frequently. Well, I, we do get cases. Not so we never see cases. We do get cases, but right. it's not as much as many as you think. And partly because when somebody is really manic and psychotic, everybody can see this person's disordered. Right. And somehow a manic person finds his or her way into the system before they do something really wrong. Okay. But having said that, we do get quite a lot of manic people coming in, generally committing crimes, or not necessarily sexual offending. 
it's, I wouldn't say it's a special. Okay, so yeah. I mean, there, there we have a, a fairly straightforward uh, situation in terms of this person needs treatment. They will respond to treatment, mm. and as a consequence of responding yeah. to treatment, they will appreciate the wrongfulness of what they've done in a certain state, and as long as they remain stable, they're unlikely to commit those acts again. So they constitute a very different uh, 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 group of individuals who might sexually offend as opposed to those with personality disorders. So in terms of, of the antisocial personality disorder, I mean, given that it exists within the psychiatric diagnostic system, can it never be used as mitigation of sentence or mitigation of crime? No. And why no. is that? Well, first of all, because in our, in our legal system, um, serious mental illnesses, namely psychoses and those disorders that have profound cognitive impairment, is what we regard as mental illness for the sake of, of the law. Okay. Um, personality disorders seldom, seldom can be used for any excuse. So that's... And other countries, that may be the case, but not here. Okay, so it's kind of interesting where within the uh, spectrum of mental illness, there is a differentiation yeah. between what could be justifiably cited as a basis for a criminal act versus not. Yeah. And so personality doesn't really come into it. So, so why, so why is it potentially that, that, that personality is even considered within the context of forensic assessment or such matters? That's an excellent question. Right. So, Usually a person will work their way into the forensic system and become what we call a state patient. Right. In other words, they have a viable excuse. It's because they have some other disorder, like, say, bipolar, schizophrenia, intellectual disability, dementia, etc., etc. Right. But in almost all the cases, there is an underlying personality disorder as well. Because if you look at someone with schizophrenia who is... Um, who has criminal tendencies. Right. In actual fact, their personality is the underlying sort of motivation for the sort of offending behavior. Okay. And the psychosis is the disinhibiting factor that facilitates it. Okay. Um, so, so someone who has a, a major psychiatric problem right. but has a good, healthy personality underneath it is unlikely to offend sexually. Okay. So what we often find, if, if a state patient is is has has a charge of say rape, and it was because he was psychotic, and then when the person recovers from the psychosis, we still have a personality disorder to deal with, and that often is the great problem. Okay. Why they usually don't get discharged that easily. So it's a kind of a layered situation, actually, where you know once you treat yeah. the overt mental illness, what you're left with is personality, and if that is not healthy, so to speak, that would potentially explain yeah. the inclination to offend. Right. So what you find is that somebody's recovered from their psychosis and what you're left with is a personality disorder. Right. It becomes really difficult to discharge that person. Okay. Because families won't accept them, the community won't accept them, and you're not always sure whether their sexual offending was primarily due to their, their psychiatric disorder or whether this is just who they are. Right. Um, 
and I must be honest, we've had cases where people have recovered from their psychosis. Yep. They, they were charged with a sexual offense. Right. We send them home on a long leave. They are not mentally ill anymore. And lo and behold, they rape somebody. So you have the situation where they, they come into our system because they have a, a psychotic disorder and they leave our system. They still have a personality problem that leads to offending behavior. Got it. Well, that's a major issue. Sean, we've come to the end of our time, unfortunately. I wish we could have continued this discussion. And I, I want to thank you for joining me. But what I'm understanding is that this is not straightforward. And I think that there's a lot to consider for the profession. So once again, thank you. And remember, pleasure, Chris. Thank you. There is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.